Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Vesna Pusic, is the former foreign minister of Croatia and a candidate to become the next UN Secretary General. She's a sociologist by training, politician and diplomat by practice, and I caught up with her one day after she participated in hours of questioning by UN member states in what was essentially a very public job interview for the position of Secretary General. Pusic grew up in Zagreb in a household of intellectuals in the aftermath of World War II. She became ensconced in academia and later turned to politics, but in her 20s, she started the first feminist NGO in Yugoslavia, and she discusses that experience. Our conversation was brief but interesting, and I want to thank her for taking time out of what was arguably one of the busiest weeks of her professional career to speak with me for the podcast. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me, to subscribe on iTunes, to check out other conversations we've posted, including conversations with other candidates for the position of Secretary General. Now, here is my conversation with Vesna Pusic. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It was actually very exciting. I thought I was going to have some stage fright, but I didn't so much. I was more excited about the whole thing. The Well, it helped that I a, listened to some of the people that did the interviews before. Also, that as a foreign minister, I've spoken already in front of the United Nations in different formats. Um, I have also spoken to a number of people that were in the room during the past week. But the whole thing had a sort of special atmosphere to it because it was, well, even the General Assembly, even the people who are the permanent representatives and who were there, um, we're doing it for the first time. So uh, the whole thing that this is now sort of the most public job interview for the most controversial job on <laughs> in the world, <laughs> possibly, maybe not the hardest. There are a few that are probably <laughs> more demanding, but oh, it's not up that there. many. Secretary General is definitely up there as, as one of the toughest ones. Yeah, no, it, it's one of the most complicated. And also because you don't really know what qualifies you. So you present yourself uh, the best you can, but you know, as the person you are, because you're really not sure uh, what are the criteria that will be looked at, or even whether and to what extent will these public interviews be taken into account by the Security Council and particularly by the 
permanent members of the Security Council when they make their decision, because you know they they even if without talking to people, you know that it's a role in which people expect a leader, but at the same time, behind closed doors, they expect somebody who will listen to the member states and especially the permanent members of the Security Council. At the same time, you have to build some kind of personal authority if you want to be effective. Then you definitely have to be a man- successful manager in order to uh, be even able to achieve the goals. So uh, nobody you know, decides to run for the Secretary General of the United Nations because she wants to manage the organization it's usually because of some other objectives and, and values that the UN stands for. But at the same time, looking at the organization, you're aware that A, it's needed, and B, that a lot of countries expect from you, among other things, also to somehow, at least to some extent, streamline the organization and the management and make it a little bit more effective. Um they also expect that the Secretary General will represent, that will be the face of the UN at a time when the, you start out with the UN having a, let's say, controversial uh, image. Um, in some quarters, not everywhere. No, no, not everywhere, <laughs> yeah. but in, I don't mean necessarily controversial in the sense of sticking to the values, but controversial probably a little bit more in the sense of what it can do mm-hmm. how effective can it be and uh this is probably one of, one of the reasons why you know I decided to do this because I've seen firsthand how uh what are the problems with it and uh at the same time how important it is that it exists when the chips are down and when it gets really tough. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. So you had the opportunity, uh, we're speaking just a day after your, your briefing, to kind of go on the record yeah. about your positions on, on various global issues. But I'd love to learn more about like you as an individual. So where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Zagreb, which is the capital of uh, Croatia. I was born there. My family has been from there for on one part for many generations. But as everybody in Central Europe, you know, they all came from partly from the coast, meaning Mediterranean, partly from the sort of Central European background, partly from the Balkans type of background. This is um, very, very much Central European, Southern European story. You always have this, so, uh, this mix. I have to imagine you were probably born just not too long after the end of, of World War II. What was your, your family's eight experience? Years. Yeah, eight, so eight years after no, the end of World War II. So, so what was your family's experience? What, how did your parents uh, uh, survive, survive in the war? Uh, well, my grandmother was uh, in a, in a, actually sentenced to death in... A, local Nazis prison, we had our own domestic brand. Yeah, of, the Ustasi, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And it's basically like a, collaborati- uh, a regime that collaborated with the Nazis and, and killed yeah. a lot of no, minorities. Some, sometimes and... was, was worse than the Nazis. Yeah. Um, uh, they, she was sentenced to death 
in uh, in one of their prisons because of hiding some things that belonged to some of her Jewish friends, and because she was a she was a doctor, so she she worked for the state, and she they required her to to take an oath to the regime, and she refused to do that. So she ended up in prison, but she wasn't executed. They sort of postponed her execution, and then the war ended, so she came back. My grandfather was in in a fascist camp in Italy because he was caught in uh, Split, which is a city on the coast. My mother was at home. My father was hiding. He was in the resistance in Zagreb, but then their cell was was uh, discovered, so he went into hiding until the end of the war. Uh, my uncle was in the partisans. With partisans, the what the resistance? They were the resistance to to uh, the Nazis and so uh, affiliated you, organizations. Were these stories talked openly in, in your childhood, or were this something yeah, sort of covered yeah, up? they were. No, no, they were. Uh, my family was not big on on this sort of uh, bragging. With their, they, they were more uh, always emphasized the the more ridiculous or the more absurd part of this whole period. Uh, they were not big on bragging with their uh, uh, achievements uh, uh, during the war, uh, but it was. It wasn't discussed much, but it was discussed, uh, you know, when I would or my brother would ask something, it was, it was discussed. There were different friends of my parents that, you know, came from, um, actually, I don't remember any friends of my parents who were not in some form or some uh, uh, kind of resistance uh, to the Nazis. So... In that sense, we didn't. You know, that that wasn't a political problem or an issue. Uh, but also, all of them were. They were all. Let's say, this is something that exists only in Eastern Europe and in France. I think they were intellectuals, meaning they sat around and discussed political, cultural, and all kinds of other uh, issues frequently. So, as a kid, I was able to. You know, sit there and listen to them and also uh, realized very early that if you had five people people around the table, it's extremely likely that you will have five very different, very strong opinions. Um, Did you learn some like verbal sparring? Would they would they really go after each other in 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 these kind of conversations? Yeah, they they will discuss and present arguments. But one big thing that I learned was that that uh, yelling and jumping up and down and insulting people didn't mean anything. Didn't didn't get you anywhere. That you had to have better and smarter arguments. And if you didn't, uh, you were usually laughed at. So uh, that I learned very early on. So what what did your uh, parents end up doing? You said you, they they were in the intellectual. My sphere. father was my father taught at the uh, law school. Actually, he was uh, very early on after the war. He worked in the Ministry of Social Services, and specifically organized um, orphanages for, for kids that, that were left without parents during the war. 
But that was before I was born. Somewhere around the time I was born, he uh, became a assistant at the law school of Zagreb University and then ended up being a professor and with a chair in, in public administration. And he traveled quite a bit and taught at different universities around the world, uh, including here in the United States. Did, did you ever travel with him as a child? Yeah, I did. Actually, that was um, the first time I was in the States was when I was not yet 19, he was teaching for a semester for six months at the University of Chicago. And Probably what, like the, I, the late 1960s? This was 72. 72. 72. Uh, and I came with him to Chicago and I went to school for one semester there because I could since I was the sort of immediate family and that was their rule that then you could go to school, which was a fantastic experience. So you I went had a, for a year at the I had a hor horrible time, horrible time for the first two months. Uh, because it couldn't, I mean, I studied English all my life before that, but never really had to use it. So, um, I was new to the university. I was new to the language. I was new to the country. I was new to the culture. So I had a difficult time for the first two months. And actually remember a colleague who was, I don't even know his name anymore, but who was with me in a class. And I think he was from Sierra Leone, and he invited me over one evening after class and said, I was watching you, and you you seem miserable, but don't worry, this will pass. This is how I felt when I first came here, that this will pass. And uh, although I don't remember his name anymore, I will never uh, forget this sort of help that and boost that he provided at that difficult moment. And after about two months, I sort of settled in and then had a wonderful time. So, I mean, University of Chicago in 1972, I, I have to imagine there is still some vestiges of the hippie culture that you must have encountered. Um, the University of Chicago wasn't very hippie well, at that time. I don't know whether it was before, but in 72, hmm. uh, everybody studied like crazy. This was one of my problems. Nobody hung out. <laughs> Everybody was spending all their time. It was an expensive university, so uh, everybody spent all their time in the library. Everybody was very competitive. One fantastic thing that, that I experienced there was Sol Bello was still there. And uh, he actually took us one evening, or later, late one evening, because he was a friend of a colleague of my father's, so he took us sightseeing Chicago at night. And this was an enormous privilege and, and very exciting experience. Sightseeing I've read, I've read, yeah, I, I've read Herzog before that. So, yeah. <laughs> and That's Sanderson, amazing. the Rain King. Um, so, uh, so you spent a year there and then you went back to university? I spent six months there. Six, six months I, there. I spent six months there. And then I went back to the University of Zagreb. And I graduated from philosophy and sociology, studying both in parallel because I wasn't sure what was the the thing that I really wanted. Uh, but it certainly served me well to learn a little bit more. And then uh, uh, did my 
actually, while I was still an undergraduate, started working on um, European comparative projects comparing different models of decision making in industrial organizations, if you can believe it. So, so what is that like? How companies, how industries let workers how make, make decisions, decisions? Make decisions, and to what to what extent were they participatory? To what extent not? How that relates to the work culture, to the efficiency, to the work satisfaction? That was a big thing in the in the 70s. And everybody in Europe, there were 12 European countries, actually 10 European, uh, 11 European countries plus Israel that were participating in this study. And I had a chance, it was led by a professor that I greatly admired from, from Slovenia, but we were at that time in the same country. Um, and I was working as his very young research assistant. And he was having at that time some political problems being thrown out from the uh, te- from his teaching position and sort of, uh, put in the in an institute. This was sort of last uh, remnant of of uh, uh, political sort of control over the academia. Like 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 a mental health institute. Like no no sort of institute no no sociological institute. Oh sociological. Somewhere, okay, so you some, like somewhere. A- Somewhere where he could work, but not teach uh, ah, students. Okay, okay, not like corrupt and, the mind of the students, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> and he was a great, a great guy. And he, but because of these problems he was having, he actually gave me way more um, space and way more, uh, more important tasks than. Uh, he would have, or anybody would have, in uh, his right mind, um, give such a total and absolute beginner, which I was at that time. But being thrown you know, into the deep end of the pool helped a lot, especially since I still had him as a mentor, so he could help and did help a great deal. But I was doing a lot of things on my own and independently, that otherwise somebody who was you know, 22 wouldn't have been allowed to do. Did, would you um, say that, that you know, being a young academic ensconced in, in sort of the academic life um, as a woman, uh, did you face, do you think, any additional challenges? I mean, I'm not sure like how popular, um, you know, how many women were in P- sociology PhD programs at the time, but in... in, in uh, Croatia, uh, there but were, were there additional challenges? There were not very many women teaching. There were a lot of women students, mm-hmm. a lot of women maybe even junior, not a lot, but some junior faculty, but not very uh, many women associate professors and full professors at that time. Uh, I don't. I mean, I was very, very active in those circles because this was exactly the time when it was happening all over the world and we were reading all the feminist literature and knew everything and everybody. And actually seven of us, me and six other friends of mine, uh, started in 78, 79. We started the first feminist group in former Yugoslavia and also in Croatia. 
What, what did the group do? And why did you want to start this NGO? Uh, first of all, NGOs were not known at that time. They did not exist and certainly did not exist in Yugoslavia at that time. So uh, this was another problem. How would we continue existing? You know, we got together and since we were all involved in some kind of writing or you know, uh, had a public persona, although we were all in our 20s, um, we just started speaking out and writing about it. And then we were attacked from all sides for different reasons. One for importing capitalist ideology, the other as feminists were uh, attacked everywhere in the world, like, you know, this is some some kind of extravagance. And in about a month, there were more than 1,000 people who joined, so we had a problem. And luckily, our old sociology professor from the university uh, allowed us to form like a subgroup within the a section within the sociologi Croatian Sociological Association. So this is how we formally existed, because, as I said, NGOs were an unknown thing. Because I would imagine... And you certainly yeah. couldn't have a political group at that time or a political organization. Yeah, well, I have to imagine out of the question. you face like two really big challenges. First is just the idea of forming this group is probably um, unheard of in, in the former Yugoslavia and kind of a communist country. The second is the, the issues you're taking on feminism are still you know, controversial to this day and, and elicit yeah. strong, strong negative yeah. responses. Which is, which is really, really surprising. Uh, it helped that we were, you know, very young, very energetic, and sort of outspoken and stuck together. So that that helped at, at uh, that time. But yes, there was a lot of uh, uh, first, a lot of sort of negative uh, press and and attacks at that time. But um, there was also a lot of support. I have to say, there was a lot of sort of. Uh, support from people who uh, wanted to join, primarily uh, huge majority were women, of course, but people who wanted to somehow support this, discuss it, bring it into the open, and that became so, uh, you know, I would say we didn't feel threatened uh, in in any way, but we we felt that now we were out and we had to defend our... Uh, ideas and and our positions and having sat under the table of my parents' debates in my childhood helped a lot here. Um, so did you spend most of the eighties then just in in academia teaching researching? Yes, yes. I was I was teaching uh, and doing research in the eighties. I did my PhD. Uh, I defended it in early eighty four. Was it in the industrial uh, uh, democracy? Yeah. PhD, the same thing what you were researching before. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in our last, in our mm -hmm. last few minutes, I, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your experience in, in 1991 and the dissolution of, of the former Yugoslavia. Where, where were you? What, what were you doing at the time when, when I was teaching? I was actually head of my department at the, the uh, University of Zagreb at that time. I was teaching, uh, uh, I think I was still an associate professor. Um, at that time, when and did, yeah. yeah, when did you get a sense that things were were really going to fall apart? Was there a moment that that 
crystallize yeah, in your there, mind? There, there was, but th- this, I think, is, is something that to some, some extent it relates to this job that I'm applying for now. And this is that I was a social scientist. I read a lot of books. I switched from industrial democracy to political uh, sociology of politics and you know, sort of uh, theory of, of uh, state. Uh, and still, I didn't see it coming in the sense that it was going to be a war. I thought that you know, the country will most probably fall apart because it was getting to be pretty impossible with Slobodan Milosevic uh, actually grasping the power because he was the first to realize in former Yugoslavia that there was this country of over 20 million people with nobody in power for about six, seven years after Tito's death. And he was the first, uh, first one to figure this out and went for it. And this was very brutal and, and pretty horrible. And it was pretty cl- clear that, that uh, the country couldn't uh, survive. But I didn't think it was going to be a war. I thought it was going to be just a sort of velvet divorce, of a, not very velvet, but uh, uh, of a kind that they had in Czechoslovakia later. However, I realized that it was going to be a war when I saw on television tanks on the highway between Belgrade and Zagreb, which was ironically called the Highway of Brotherhood and Unity, uh, tanks that started towards Zagreb. And this was so unreal and so shocking. And at the same time, taught me forever not to assume that wars in any other country or a war in any other country is something that these people are used to or expected or in a way should be patronized for or looked down upon because of it. Because wars, among other things, are not only horrible and everything awful that goes with it, they're also extremely embarrassing. What do you and mean by that? What's what's embarrassing about a war? That you, you know, what kind of society are you? What kind of people are you that you were not able to avoid this? To somehow, uh, you know, find another solution. Uh, instead, you you, uh, you know, some, somehow descended into this barbarism. And that was also something that was pretty, among other things. I mean, there you don't necessarily think of that all the time. You think of some other horrible things that are happening because they're immediate. And, and, but that, too, is part of that. And I don't think that this is reserved for just you know, some people or some countries. I think everybody must feel that way when they're in that situation. Nobody feels that they are the ones for whom this is normal. I'm sure of it. And I think uh, having gone through that experience uh, certainly cures any potential arrogance that you might have in approaching other people in other countries when they're in a similar and comparable situation. So how did you experience the war? How did you, you uh, survive it? Were you in Zagreb the whole time? I was in Zagreb uh, 
Zagreb wasn't the war zone, although it was hit a few times and, and some people were killed uh, by by uh, mortars or whatever, rockets that they fired at uh, Zagreb, including uh, the seat of the government the, the, uh, and some people in the street and some people actually from the theater when they were practicing uh, were killed, but those were maybe a few in- incidents. Other than that, Zagreb was not in the war zone. But you know, most of my male friends went to war. Uh, we talked about it a lot, and uh, and it's not sort of a, a one time or 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 immediate decision. People sat around, were frustrated, felt, uh, you don't know exactly what to do, how long this is going to to last, is this for real? Uh, Ex post facto, it looks much more uh, clear than it is while you're sitting in the middle of this situation. So a lot of my friends went into war feeling that they cannot get out of bed and make a new decision what they think about the whole thing every morning. That you know, they just take this decision and and then see how it comes out. Um, it lasted relatively long, but the the uh, difficult years and in some ways more complicated years were also the post-war years. And this is rarely realized that these post-war years are, um, you know, in a way you can win the war as a state, but as a society, you always lose. It takes a long time to recover. It takes a long time to establish normal government, normal relations, um, you know, some interpersonal relations uh, are broken forever. It's a very complicated experience. And uh, if you go through that, you then understand. And then trying to defend human rights and especially ethnic rights in a war that uses nationalism as its uh, sort of mobilizing uh, uh, and rallying cry is. I think essential and very important, but it's not easy either. Uh, well, Dr. Pusic, I uh, want to be respectful of your time. I know this is an incredibly busy week for you. Um, any final thoughts you want you want you want to share? What's next for you? Uh, what's next? We'll see. Right. <laughs> I've just started working on the next. All right. Well, well. Good luck. Good luck. And thank, thank you, you so much, much for your time. I appreciate you speaking with me. Sure. Really interesting. Very, very glad to hear some stories from the life and times of Vesna Pusic. And thank you all for listening and stay tuned for more conversations of candidates for UN Secretary General. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.